This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's 6 a.m. on Friday, the 22nd of April 2022, or Fry Ye, as I like to call it. I'm Shazana Mokhtar in studio today with Tan Chen Li and Ku Su Chuang. Yeah, you got it right. <laughs> no wrong shouting. <laughs> We could do a bingo game, really, to see how many times does Chaz flub up the names this day. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. The day is still young. You could, I think you should still brace yourself for being called Wong Xiaoning at some point in the day. Uh, but we'll be with you all the way up to 10 a.m. And we do have a range of thought-provoking discussions lined up this morning, uh, beginning at 7.15. Now, today is World Earth Day. And in keeping with this year's theme, Invest in Our Planet, we're discussing the growing trend of ESG investing with Dr. Lim Kim Hua, founder and CEO of Create Capital. And then at 7.30, we're going to talk about Japan, uh, not just about tourism or anything, but about their economy, because we're going to discuss the mystery of the persistent low inflation in their economy with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Daniel Moss. And then at 7.45, the $64 million question, how impactful are political debates? This question is being answered by Taiki, Tai Zikin, the political consultant, who, de- who, who, will, who we will discuss debate discuss debate culture <laughs> with in Malaysian politics. It's Friday with the morning run. All this and more. Keep it here. BFM 89.9. That was the brand new Heavies with Stay This Way. They are an acid jazz and funk band uh, coming from West London, one of Chuang's favourites, it seems. Cheers, and I'm cheers. talking about Kusu Chuang, of course. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. We also have Tan Chen Li here in studio with us. It's Friday, 6.07am. Uh, and we're looking at some stories this morning in conjunction with World Book and Copyright Day, or also known as the International Day of the Book. Uh, that's tomorrow, actually, 23rd of April. But we're starting the celebrations early. Um, it's fitting that our discussion this morning will be book-centric, and uh, we are first looking at this review in the Wall Street Journal of a book titled Diplomatic Gifts, A History of 50 Presents that chronicles the exchange of gifts between countries. Now, this book is written by Paul Brummel, who's currently the UK ambassador to Latvia. Yes, and we're going to talk a little bit about the content of the book, which is diplomatic gifts. And we know that gifts, uh, uh, diplomatic gifts, symbolizes the lasting friendship between two powers. Um, if you think about some examples that are very famous in the world, you have the Statue of Liberty or the Japanese cherry trees in Washington D.C. And those are great gifts when you think about it. Not they're, bad, they're right? Eternal, and they're there forever. Yeah, and uh, it's it's something that people can visit uh, whenever they go to Washington D.C. So well, well thought out those gifts. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> Those are. But I also kind of think about the... Because sometimes diplomatic gifts also involve live animals. And I can't help but think about the ones that we have in Malaysia, in Malaysian context, which are the pandas. So if we still remember, we received that um, almost eight years ago. And uh, and actually, I have forgotten about them altogether. And then recently, when I stumbled upon this, this article, I thought about them. I was like, do we still have the pandas in Malaysia in the zoo? And it seems that we have. And I they... shudder to think what's happened to them because of the state of the Malaysian zoo. But uh, that oh, being said... I'm sure they're very well cared for, sure given they that are. they are a diplomatic gift from China. And China's very well known for panda diplomacy. They, give, they bestow their pandas to various countries and their zoos. Um, and cheap loans to build highways uh, and... and <laughs> Oh, we'll throw some pandas know. 
doesn't as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, but they're not cheap to maintain, you know, because it's on loan basis and per year it's about a million US dollar. Are you serious? Yes, that was something that I didn't know as well. They could have used that money to go and build some tennis courts or something. Tennis courts? Yeah, yeah or basketball or whatever, you know, parkour parts. Yeah, so I actually can't help but wonder, you know, when it comes to diplomatic gifts, who actually ultimately benefit from these? This story made me think of two stories. It made me think of two things. The first one is, well, remember a few years ago when the authorities um, um, opened Najib's apartment in Pavilion Kale mm-hmm. and he, they found all kinds of, um, you know, Gifts. Um, valuables in there, cash, watches, handbags, you know, jewellery, that kind of thing. And then Najib said, oh, these are all gifts from governments that, um, you know, really want to be friends with Malaysia. And that's where these things have come from. <laughs> that's the first thing. <laughs> You know, and what? I was going to yeah. say that I, um, I feel like diplomatic gift giving, it can be that grey area, which is why some countries like the US heavy regulated. So any gifts that the head of state receives actually has to be meticulously documented. Yeah. I'm not even sure that they can actually use them. Like even if they're given a clothing or something that, you know, can be used, they're not, they don't really use them. Instead, they store them somewhere and then yeah, it's documented in, an, in yeah. an annual chronicle where you can see, oh, this year the president received this, 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 which I think is great for transparency. I think and I think the the second thing that popped into my head was I'd like to send, I would personally like to send Vladimir Putin a whole crate load of Hagendas chocolate ice cream. And then my theory is that once you send chocolate ice cream to uh, militant leaders and their soldiers, they would put down arms and then eat the ice cream and then stop fighting because ice cream is a great pacifier, <laughs> in my opinion. a bit of a chill pill, yeah? Chill man, yeah. <laughs> but why chocolate flavour? Oh, my favourite, absolute favourite, <laughs> beyond <laughs> anything else. Who doesn't love chocolate? Do you not love chocolate, Chin Lee? I do, I okay. do. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, discussions yeah. on that aside, I mean, these this a diplomatic gifts is a way for two countries to, like you said, Chen Li, kind of meet each other at the table and just show um, friendly relations with each other. It reminds me, I like I like hearing about gifts that show a certain amount of thought into it. So it's not just perhaps a gift, a cultural gift. But do you remember back in 2017 when um, President Joko Widodo was uh, appointed as president of Indonesia and the Danish prime minister actually gave him a box set uh, of Metallica records? Because, Are you serious? Because That's President Jokowi is a huge... Uh, heavy metal fan and I thought that showed such um, it, it showed such thought and it, it really showed a genuine um, French personal friendship in my, in my opinion yeah not that it makes me feel really good about the Indonesian presidents uh, having an affection <laughs> for heavy metal because you know heavy metal fans are you know one kind lah you know no as opposed to thing. Beethoven Germany no Chuang being Chuang. <laughs> I think it shows well, a lot know. of diversity in interests, you know. Put you on the spot, Shaz. Uh, if you were a, a head of state, who and what would you give a, another leading head of state? Okay, I assume, I'm assuming I'm the head of state of Malaysia uh, and not, no, any, and any not Genovia. It could, no, <laughs> it, it could be anything. It could be, you know, Tuvalu, for example. I don't know, whatever. Okay, well, okay, let's take it that I'm the head of state of Malaysia okay. and I want to give a diplomatic gift. Ooh, this is very interesting. For me, I would really turn to something cultural, I suppose. And I, I guess um, I, w- I would actually... Uh, seek one of our um, artists. I would commission a, a painting from okay. one of our national artists, um, and have that symbolize kind of I, I don't know which whoever, whichever country, but I would kind of incorporate um, elements from us in them and make it a really unique, one of a kind gift for that particular country. So that's my idea. I don't know how much that would cost, but I do assume that the government does have a budget for these kinds of diplomatic sure gifts. One, sure, God, it's got one. Of no, it's just okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would actually want to. Uh, actually, I quite like the cherry tree. 
luxury um, idea. Uh, although Malaysia don't really have durian trees. Oh, oh <laughs> good yeah. idea. Oh yeah. I'm sure some countries would adore that. Yes, I'm pretty sure. But I would like to give something more of a light, like more like a living thing, but not like an animal that is you know requires a lot of upkeeping and all that. Um, yeah. What about you, Chuan? Uh, a huge commercial jetliner that will drop crates of one litre Haagen-Dazs chocolate ice cream <laughs> sure. on soldiers in Mariupol and Donetsk so that they stop fighting and eat chocolate instead. Because it's Friday, of course we can go on these fans, fantastical whims of fancy. So tell us what you would give as a diplomatic gift. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're continuing our discussion in the theme of World Book Day after these few messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. That was In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel, immortalized, of course, in the uh, teenage movie Say Anything, starring, um, was it Russell Crowe? No, no, not Russell Crowe. I forgot. I closed my tab. But uh, if any of you (laughs) remember the names, I believe um, John Cusack. That's it, John Cusack. I win. Um, I'm Shazana Mokhtar, of course, the self-declared winner of this morning. I'm in studio with Kusu Chuang and Tan Chen Li, 621 in the morning. I have a quick message here from uh, Ro via WhatsApp. He was weighing in on the conversation we had earlier about diplomatic gifts. He says that the best diplomatic gift ever is the Trojan Oh horse. yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that was a gift, Ro. I'm not sure we can call that a gift, but thanks for weighing in on that. Alright, we are turning our attention to um, other stories. Well, not so much of a story, but more of a reflection, because as mentioned, tomorrow is the International Day of the Book, commemorated by UNESCO to promote reading, publishing and copyright. We're going to be discussing these issues on the Breakfast Grill today when Wong Xiaoning speaks to two Malaysian publishers Chong Thon Sin of Gerak Budaya and Amir Muhammad of Buku Fixi. So stay tuned for that conversation after the 8am news bulletin. This morning though, I wanted to maybe ponder on reading culture in Malaysia and the challenges of promoting reading in a digital age because we do see that uh, everyone's going to digital and tablets and you know TikTok, uh, but what do, where does that leave reading? Do you think it still has a place in our society? Yeah, at a headline level I think that people assume that reading is on the decline in Malaysia and I actually I disagree. I, th- I think that reading is alive and well, but it's taken different forms, right? So how you read, on what platform, what you read and for what purpose, I think has changed materially, okay? Yes, so how, how you read definitely has gone from print and hard copy to online and, and, and you know, web. Uh, what you read has gone from maybe fiction predominantly in the past to uh, maybe social media postings or uh, short form articles to things like that and even videos and for what purpose definitely for social media purposes rather than for own uh, creative uh, fulfillment or even intellectual pursuits that's the first thing I want to say the second thing I want to say is that I think for reading for me personally has taken on life stages so in the first third of my life it was more like for educational purposes for university things like that and you have a lot of spare time so a lot of uh, uh, fiction the second part is um, your professional life. And the reading that you've taken on is, is more purpose-driven. So because you're so busy, right? And that's the part that I'm in now. I think that in the final third of, of your life, this sounds a bit ominous, right? You will then have more time if, in your life and then you'll switch back to uh, more fiction. That's just my theory. La. I, I don't know. It could be different for other people. But I think you're right because the switch to social media is immense, you know, especially over the last two years during the pandemic. Everyone is 
spending more time on social media and the attention span that all of us uh, have are getting shorter. So reading on social media seems to be the way to go for a lot of people and also not long articles sometimes. It could be like short form videos yeah. That's or That's why you got articles. the TLDR summaries, right? Exactly. So these are, these are useful for us. But can we say that that's not reading? That's, I think to me, yeah. it's still reading. Yeah, you're still reading, but what you read, how you read, and for what purposes changed huge amounts. I would say yes, to some extent. There is that uh, change in, in sort of the materials that we read. But does this mean the end of books? Does this mean that uh, the printed word is no longer relevant? I, I disagree there as well. I do think that books still have a place um, in our society. And I also agree with what you said, Chuang, in terms of the progression of reading habits throughout the years and how it changes from when we were younger to um, older and, and later on in life. Now, I one thing that I've been wondering is, is it is it possible to cultivate a reading habit when when you're at a later stage of life? Because for myself, I started reading from a very young age. I, was, I loved reading from when I was small. And so I've carried that habit with me through my adult years. But for those who maybe don't didn't have didn't develop that reading uh, when they were young, you know, what's that like to come to uh, a reading habit later in life and how did you get into that? If uh, I'd love to hear from uh, listeners if they have uh, if they have that experience just because I think that uh, reading brings such joy and I would really want to I, I would want to say that just because you didn't read when you were young doesn't mean that will that can stop you from um, get finding the joys of reading when you're older. Yeah, I know totally. Like my brother, right? Um, I hate the Ultimate Public <laughs> Radio, but he has never really read um, books. I mean, my children also, they don't really read books anymore. Um, and my brother, who's in his mid-30s now, he, he reads, he updates himself on the news through Facebook postings. Mm-hmm. And then I, I was I was nearly livid when I heard, heard him reveal that information. Because I said that, you know, Facebook feeds and postings are not news because it is fixed to your... Uh, you're clicking, you know, uh, history, and it's it's not it's artificial, so so you don't have the ability to be impartial and to be neutral in your reading habits, which you should, right? Because you want to have unfettered by unfettered news, unfettered from bias. You want to be exposed to a Absolutely. range of different perspectives. You don't Absolutely. want to stick to the same kind of um, thought thought process without having exposure to Correct. other ways of thinking. And I think a lot of young people rely too much on postings and feeds on their social media. To, to get the information news, which is wrong. Yes, and I think like what Shas was saying, the medium of how we read, is it digital or is it print? I think it can, and for me, it's definitely the mix of both. Um, because certain times on the shorter uh, articles or news, you can read it online because it's faster. But if it's like a, a proper book, I would prefer to read it on a print copy rather than ebook. Well, tell us what you think. How have your reading habits changed throughout your life? You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're heading into the 6.30 a.m. news bulletin now. It's 6.26 a.m. We'll be back after that with a look at global headlines. Taking you to the bulletin is New Light by John Mayer, BFM 89.9. That was the charlatans with the only one I know. You know us. We're the morning run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Kusu Chuang and Tan Chen Li. No charlatans here. Just honest folk bringing you the news of the day. 6.41 in the morning. We're taking a look at what's making global headlines. Chuang, you're raring to go. Tell us what's caught your eye this morning. Yeah, that's right. It's become a bit of a game to decode what Elon Musk uh, tweets on his Twitter account. And as we know, um, Elon Musk is trying to uh, buy the entirety of, of Twitter. So a couple of nights ago, um, Elon tweeted uh, a very cryptic tweet which said that um, he tweeted 
blank is the night. Yeah. And that caused a lot of people to wonder what he was trying to say. And some people guessed that he was actually uh, going after F. F. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night novel. Oh, wow. How actually, literary, Elon Musk. Yes, yes. No, no, maybe, maybe. We're just guessing, right? Which then led a lot of people to guess that he's going to make a tender offer for Twitter. And which basically a, t- a tender, a tender okay. is when he when he allows every single shareholder of Twitter to then uh, put a figure that they would buy that they would sell their shares at, and that uh, also dovetails with the fact that he's also Elon Musk filed a Section Thirteen D uh, filing with uh, the SC, which then signals that he's actually uh, secured the funding. For, for an offer. For Actually, Twitter. he did say that he secured a funding yeah, of $46.5 billion, yes. uh, which is $9 billion more than the the, the the speculated or the valuation, which is $43 billion. Yes. And so there's nine, this... Uh, actually, a lot of people are thinking that the $54.20 may not be the final offer. Yes. It may be more than that. It yeah. could equate to maybe almost $64 if he were to use the entire funding that he has secured. Yes. So... We don't know. And in the last uh, three days, uh, in, in fact, in the last four days, Twitter shares have r- risen three of, the, of those four days. Ah. So uh, people are hoping and praying that maybe he, he could be the one to take Twitter private. Well, that's definitely something we're going to keep an eye on. Uh, I mean, Twitter's board is not going to go into this. They're not going to go gently into the good night on this. They are <laughs> they are fighting back with their poison pill um, measure, uh, whether that will give them by the time to retain control in order to find an alternative buyer. We don't know. I think this is all going to play out in the coming weeks. Uh, and we'll be watching that very closely for sure. Yes, and um, let's move the attention to Australia. So the election is ongoing and uh, they just had their, uh, the two, uh, Scott Morrison and also Anthony Albanese, also just had their presidential debate. Um, And one of the things that was mentioned during the debate was Scott Morrison um, mentioned that he's blessed to not have disabled children. And that has sparked outrage. That is such a major gas. Scotty, what are you doing, mate? What's wrong with you? So quoting him directly, he said, Jenny and I, I have been blessed. We've got two children that don't and haven't had to go oh, through that. So, yes, lovely. it kind of, yeah, it, it didn't go very what well there. What politician is this fella? La? I Ayo. have no idea even, why even you said I, that. Even I know better than to say that kind of thing. Yes. Let and alone a prime minister. Exactly. And then on top of that, um, the day after, uh, opposition leader Anthony Albanese actually got <laughs> diagnosed with COVID and now he has to stay at home for the remaining of the campaign. Oh wow. dear, that's quite Seven an un- days at least, yeah. unfortunate twist of events so close to the elections. Australia is due to have their elections on the 21st of May. A score of countries are seeing elections in the coming weeks. We've got France this weekend. They're going for their second round of the presidential election. We've got uh, Australia. And don't forget the Philippines is also due to have their elections sometime in May as well. So lots of new leaders or incumbent leaders to look at. Yes. Well, Although want- Hong Kong's race is kind of a done deal. Right? All right, that's pretty yeah. True. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there were no need to go and cover la. There were no democracy there. But I want many Pacquiao to win in Philippines. Oh, okay. You're yeah. going for you're the going boxer. you're going for the big name there. Yeah, the ghetto, the fighter from the ghetto. You know that one. I've also got some news. I'm uh, putting my hand up. You know how during COVID time, right? Uh, we did a lot of Zoom calls and virtual calls, and a lot of people um, criticized those calls for being too anodyne, too uh, sterile. Well, now there's been a wave, a, a rash, in fact, 
or, or developments on that front because um, companies that include Twitter are now going to be wanting one. They now want to introduce emotion recognition software into those calls, which means that they can, according to your facial features, um, make conclusions or draw conclusions about how happy or how sad or how excited or how not excited you are by those calls. And which has then sparked a backlash because people are saying that those are intrusive on privacy and there's going to be all kinds of concerns around that front. That is so interesting in the yeah. sense that who is it helping to decipher these emotions yeah. for? You know, yeah. like who is being told, oh, this person's not happy enough or this person's too sad. And another thing that I'd like to bring apart is when you come to this emotion recognition, it's often based on a very uh, uniform demographic, typically Caucasian demographic. And so it doesn't really capture the nuances of other ethnicities in the world. Yeah. How effective is it going to be in a place like Asia, for example? Yeah, the dead pen chin up at look. You know that one? It's fantastic. <laughs> 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 what is he thinking? And what if I have po- <laughs> face. (laughs) Well, interesting developments there. We'll see what else comes out of that news. It's 6.46 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. And when we come back, we'll take a look at what what is making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. That was Blondie with Picture This. Picture the three of us in the studio at BFM 89.9 with The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Kusu Chuang and Tan Chen Lee. 6.50 in the morning on Friday, the 22nd of April. We're taking a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Tell me what's caught your eye. Go ahead. Yes, that's strong. Being very gentleman here, I'll start then. We're like, let's talk about the fav- our favorite app, which is my Sajatru app again. And we know the saga that's been going on, you know. And apparently, PAC chairman said that, the, or uh, Wong Kawo said that, government is confused over who appointed the my Sajatru vendor because there was no formal agreement since day one. What is this? <laughs> How did we do all this without? I mean, we, we went on a long way, you know, developing the app and re, um, rolling it out countrywide, nationwide, but there is no formal appointment. Never underestimate the ability of a government to stuff up in the most crucial moments. We can lose jet engines, we can buy submarines that don't submerge. So this is nothing, lah. <laughs> I mean, it's probably another in a long line of um, questionable decisions made by the government. And I am, um, I'm, it's good that the uh, PAC or the Public Accounts Committee is looking into this. I hope all the uh, ministries and officials, government officials who've been involved in this project uh, come and give their testimony to the PAC so we can actually be transparent about the whole thing and get a clear picture of what's happening. Not not to cast blame, as I'm sure many may think it yeah. so, but it's really just to make sure that we are able to understand what the process, what happened and to make sure that it doesn't repeat itself in the future. Because as we can see, this has caused so many problems Exactly, with a lot of people now questioning whether the legitimacy, the security of this important app. And who should be responsible? And that's Three, also the big question there. 339 million ringgit is the value of the sale of the app to another party. So henceforth, go figure. I've got a bit of news from the Star, page 12. Uh, it's a very important story because uh, the Star is, co- is quoting Chief Statistician Dato Sri Dr. Mohamed uh, Ozia Mahidin uh, s- saying that that Malaysia's population has flatlined, having grown only 1.7% on a yearly basis since 2010. Right now, the population is about 32 million people versus about 27 million 12 years ago. So henceforth, a 1.7% birth rate decline. And I'd like to say this is a very big issue because this is a part of a global trend which has the global population declining precipitously uh, over the last number of years, denting people's assumptions that we have got too many people in this world. And Elon Musk himself has gone on to say that depopulation could be one of the biggest risks to humankind in the long term. Because if we don't refresh enough, human civilization will end. 
I, I feel like this is reaffirming the trend that we've been talking about for many years now, the aging population, the fact that our population is shrinking. And in the end, who is going to bear the burden of, of all the economic uh, structural pro issues that come out of this? I do. It's something that policymakers need to be more cognizant of and make plans for mm -hmm. rather than waiting to the point of kind of no return and then we're, we're stuck in a, in a quagmire that we can't get out of. Yeah, it's quite alarming because anecdotally, I was in Penang last weekend, right? And it was actually very, very concerning because all around me in the market, in the malls, in the streets, and, or, or in Guni Drive, the number of aged uh, um, folks in Penang is, is alarming all over the place. Uh, people in wheelchairs, people in, in walkers, um, you know, walking along the streets with uh, walking canes, white hair, 60s, 70s, a lot, a lot. It could be that, uh, that could be a kind of, uh, there's a, you might be just be noticing it because you're more attuned no, to no, that no, trend. No. I don't also, know. Penang is a great place for people to settle down after Fair. they stop working. And it is a big thing. I've seen it with my own eyes and it's a real thing. Okay, well, something that we will continue discussions on here at BFM. We have a range of uh, discussions on population and demographic changes in our podcast library. Do look that up. But turning our attention to some other headlines, uh, looking at, I suppose, uh, headlines related to our transition to endemic. So I think yesterday the health ministry did come up with a few announcements. Firstly, that quarantine will no longer be mandatory for close contact starting tomorrow. So if you are a close contact, uh, close contact to someone exposed to COVID-19, um, if you're asymptomatic, you're not expected to quarantine. If you are symptomatic, you are encouraged to self-quarantine, but there's not going to be any enforcement on that. So it is a change of tact in terms of how the government is looking at um, containing the spread it seems to it seems as if they're not looking to contain it anymore it's uh, it looks like they're letting it uh, well that's the approach that's the approach Singapore has taken that's the approach uh, Boris Johnson's UK has taken I mean my I, my brother-in-law went to the UK no quarantine no restrictions nothing not even a proof of a, of a jab he's just gone there and you know Bob's your uncle well, yeah. the health ministry has said that uh, preventive measures are still very much encouraged, uh, you know, wearing face masks, mm. avo avoid crowded places, ensure good ventilation. And in terms of face masks, the police has also backtracked on an earlier uh, circular that said they were no longer going to enforce masking. That is put on hold. They are enforcing masking. So let's not be too, uh, I suppose, hasty in taking off that mask. No, let's mask up when you go out in public. That's still a good safety measure in these times. And I'm just going to quickly uh, jump into the Rohingya issue again. Um, so the apparently the mastermind, uh, which is someone who has been in the detention detention camp as uh, in the in the in the, the camp for the longest time, he and a hundred more people are still out at large, uh, and I think the police are still looking for them. Well, I feel like this situation has really um, spotlighted just the laws that exist for refugees in Malaysia, which are non-existent, by the way. And there's a lot of uh, long-standing issues that yeah. are fin not finally coming to the light, but coming to the light again that need urgent attention. Mm. So do listen to yesterday's Inside Story podcast. The evening edition spoke to Katrina Malyamov of Amnesty International and Lillian Fan of Gatanyo, Malaysia on where the gaps are in terms of how Malaysia treats its refugees, where it can improve. It's definitely worth a listen. 6.56 in the morning. We're heading into the 7 a.m. news bulletin. And after that, it's uh, we'll take a look at how global markets close. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.